about this whole concept of the will of God. We've probably been on this theme for maybe three weeks now, four weeks now, talking about the will of God and looking at what is the will of God and trying to debunk some myths about the will of God. The will of God is not the eye of a needle. It's not this pinpoint moment in time and history and space that if you don't nail it, then God has no use for you. And the purpose of your life has been null and voided. If it was like that, then we all know statistically the chances of every single decision you have made in your entire life being the exact perfect one that took you down that exact path. It would be like a, 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 a GPS pointing you and saying, go right, but what happens if you went left? And you don't actually even know the destination anyway, so then what happens if, if you adjust, you've got to turn right, but you go straight? The possibilities are endless. If the will of God is an eye of a needle, then I think we are all in a massive amount of trouble because I think that... Uh, it puts so much of a limitation on our ability to choose. When I go out somewhere with my children, uh, well, let's say we go to a park or something like that, and they run in. When my kids were small, I used to take them to the skate park, for example. We'd go to the skate park. You know, there's a lot of things a kid could do at a skate park. They can ride scooters up and down ramps. They can ride skateboards. They can ride push bikes. They can break arms, legs, fibias, tibias. They can do all kinds of things at skate parks. Uh, they can sit down and just watch if they want to at a skate park. And when we would take our kids to the skate park, they would then grab their whatever it is that they wanted and they would run out on that skate park and there would be a world of opportunity in front of them that they could do. Um, I never went to the skate park with my kids and said to my kids, now, before we go, I want you to pray. Should you take your scooter, your skateboard or your bike? And then we're not going to move until we have a clear word from the Lord about what you should do. Now, I know this sounds funny, but I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently and he was telling me about uh, a friend of theirs that they know that used to pray every day about what clothing items to put on. Should I wear the red dress? Should I wear the blue? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. If you want to pray in front of your closet every day and ask the Lord to tell you what socks to wear, what underpants to put on, whether to put them on front or back... I sometimes pray what sock, what foot I should put my sock on. And every time, it's right. I always get the left one on the left and the right on the right. It's amazing. So occasionally I understand that we might want to take these things to God. I'm not debunking and saying don't. But what I'm saying is this. Sometimes I think we, we have a wrong concept of the will of God. We feel like the will of God is so narrow. My experience is that the will of God for your life and my life is a vast highway with many, many opportunities on it. And God sets this up. And, and God goes to us, choose, what would you like to do? See, in Acts chapter 16, which is the foundational scripture we've been looking at, we have the story of the disciples heading in a direction, going out with a simple thing. All they knew is this. They knew who they were in God. They knew who God was in them. And then they looked at the opportunities in front of them and said, how do I bring that world into this space of opportunity? And so Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So that's exactly what they did. They just went out into all the world and preached the gospel. In Acts 16, we've got this, this almost out-of-place story where they're heading this way and the Bible says, but the Spirit of God forbade them. So they turned and they went this way and it says a second time, the Holy Spirit forbade them. God stopped them and said no. So then they chose to go this way. They got stopped. They, they had a dream in the middle of the night about a man in Macedonia. So Paul goes, I think we should go to Macedonia. But the point is this. They're up and they're moving and they're going in a certain direction and God says stop. 
So we know that they probably didn't spend all night, all week, fasting and praying, God, what direction should we go, waiting till they were 100% convinced God said go there, and then they start walking in this direction, and then God says, ha-ha, gotcha. I'm just kidding. I want you to go over here. And then God does it a second time to them. Ah, just kidding, suckers. What we can deduce out of that is based on what they knew of who they were in God, what they knew of who God was in them, and what they knew of the opportunities around them. They looked at that space of opportunity and said, okay, what do we do? What choice can we make? Well, we know we've got to go into all the world. We know that Asia's in all the world. Bithynia's in all the world. We know these parts are all the world. We know these people haven't heard the message of the cross. So let's just do something. But when they went about their businesses, they went about their life, they weren't sitting down going, I'm not going to move till I hear a yes. They decided, based on the knowledge I have and the wisdom I have, I'm going to do something and I'm going to listen and be open for a no. So my kids, when I take them to the skate park, they run out there, they, they decide to take a scooter or a skateboard or a bike, or, and they go out there and they decide whether they go on that ramp or that ramp. They make their own decision whether they want to go up or down. They make their own decision if they want to stop and grab a drink of water, sit on a rock and watch other people skate for 20 minutes. They make those decisions. If my children start to wander beyond the realm of the skate park and start to go too far, my responsibility as a parent is like, hey, come back here. Come back here. We quite often would do that with our kids when they would swim. We'd go to the beach. We would give them parameters. You can go out there, have a swim, uh, but don't go past, you know, your waist height. Anyone ever do that with their kids? Don't go past waist height. And so the kids will go out up to waist height, and they'll always flaunt with the, the edge, you know, as far as they can go. And all of a sudden, their waist moved up to their nipples. Then their waist became their neckline, and, you know, they, they'll push it and push it. But the thing is, they're, they're playing, they're paddling in the water, they're throwing balls, they're swimming, jumping up and down. When they start to get outside of that space, as parents, we go, hey, because it's our responsibility, hey, come back, come back. And I believe that God is like that with us. There's incredible scope and opportunity for us to do things in this life in which God has given us. So much room. And sometimes, though, I think as Christians, we check wisdom out the door, we check our brain out the door, and we become overly spiritual and we sit around doing nothing, waiting until we have a word from the Lord to do something. Waiting on God to give us any sense of directional purpose. And we're afraid to move. And I think that's part of the problem with the church, particularly in the West, is we're paralysed by this whole concept of what is the will of God. So we sit around doing nothing when there are vast opportunities around us. And God's going, based on what you know of me and you, and based on what you know of who you are in me, and based on what you know of that opportunity, what can we bring into that space to see the kingdom of God come? What can we do? I love that passage in Acts 16. These guys took initiative. And they went out and they did things, but they did it with an open enough heart to the Father to hear him say, that's the wrong direction, go this way. And I think more of us need to adopt that attitude in life. You know, some of us have dreams and visions and hopes and things we want to achieve and places we want to go. You know, I was talking to, um, I was actually having a chat with, with uh, Bevan yesterday. We were talking about the process of, of how he moved down here. And I just commented to him how incredibly unspiritual. I mean, this guy and his family were living in Maryborough. They came down here for a holiday. While they were down here, um, they, they, they sent out the front of a, a, a business and basically, cut a long story short, Bevan went into a place and asked, is there any work there? just so happens that the guy that the business he walked into, the man was a Christian. He had just lost an employee the day before and was looking for a new employee. 
Um, so all the things kind of lined up. But, but just, let's just imagine, though, that Bevan had have sat out the front of that first and said, Lord, I'm not going to go inside and ask about any work in this area unless you move me by your spirit. You've got to speak clearly to me, make sure that it's right for me to walk into that business on that time. He did none of that stuff. They just came down here and thought, wow, Bal is prettier than Maryborough. Not wrong, I've lived up that way myself. You know, there's, there's, there's some great things down here. If we can find work, why don't we move down here? And so they went, knocked on a door, a door opened up, found work, and now we've got this wonderful family living down in this area. And he's telling me this story. I'm, I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm thinking, how unspiritual. How, you mean you just, you know, you sort of just looked at the lifestyle and you did the numbers and you thought about your kids and you thought about your family and could you provide, you, you mean you just thought about all those things? Is that, and based on that, with the wisdom you have, you made a decision? My goodness, how unspiritual. How unspiritual, but I'm glad you're here. Sometimes we over-spiritualise this whole thing of the will of God. We don't move, we don't do anything, you know? The, the disciples, what I, I love the disciples in the upper room. They go to the upper room and they pray and Jesus says, wait. But he said to wait for one thing. He said, I only want you to wait till the Spirit comes. When the Spirit comes, stop waiting, get out of that room and go and tell the world about Jesus. So they go up into the upper room, they wait, they wait, they wait, they wait. The Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they got out of the upper room, they went and they did stuff that impacted their world, brought the kingdom of heaven to bear on the earth in which they were. That's what they did. They just went out and did stuff. I feel like in the West, I'm, I keep my ears out and I hear people and I, I feel like, what are we doing? I think too many of us are trying to crawl back up into the upper room, waiting for something that's already happened. The Spirit of God is already here. He's upon us. He's upon us already, but we want to go back to the upper room and pray again. I'm not anti-prayer. I'm all into prayer. I'm very much for uh, um, opening yourself up and saying, God, you know, speak to me. If there's, if there's a specific thing that, that, that I'm to put my hand to the plow or to do, I'm open to that. But don't sit back paralyzed doing nothing until I hear this booming voice in the sky. You know what? The world is full of needs around us. There are some wonderful, great things we can do. There are great opportunities out there. If you've got a dream, a vision, you want to see something happen, you know what? You've got to put your hand to that. You've got to start knocking on doors, start doing some things to get towards that. But there are a lot of misconceptions about the will of God. So last week we've started to kind of look at some of these misconceptions. And some of the misconceptions can be tied up in reasons why people don't want to move until we have a 100% clear-cut word from God before we do anything. You know, with the building we're going into, um, I went to the owners, and this is probably uh, about six, seven months after, eight months after I'd started talking to them about this building. And, you know, we finally got the lease and we signed it all and so on. Let me tell you something. This whole building has been a step of faith. I can't tell you. I would be stupid and arrogant to stand here and say, oh, I had 100%. I just had a sense that this is where we should be going. But you know what? I could still be sitting here right now today having a sense of where I should be going. If I don't take a step and do something, then there's no way I'm going to get directed. You know? So I've contacted these guys. We've got the lease form signed, and I've got people above me saying, you know, you guys can't do this. It's not going to work. And in the end, I just had to say to them, all I can give you is the sense of faith I have. I feel like this is the right thing. So because of that, I have to take a step. I can't just sit here in life and go, you know, I feel like it's right to feed the poor. I feel like it's right. I'm convinced that we need to do something for the poor, but I do nothing for the poor. Big whoop. I feel like it's right that people that do not know Jesus need to hear about the cross. I feel it's right that every child, every kid in this area needs to, to have the gospel present. It's great that I feel that, but unless I start taking a step and do something about it, what good is the feeling? 
What good is the feeling? So I contacted them and we started this ball rolling. The owners contacted me one day and they sent me an email. They said, look, and, and what happened was they're starting to get cold feet. And they said to me, look, we're, we're just not sure anymore. By this stage, I'm way in. You know, I've got leases signed. We've got things happening. I'm, but I'm in that limbo. I'm still waiting for people above me to okay things we can do and so on. And we're waiting for council to get a DA back. And they emailed me and they said, you know what, I think we're, we're just not sure um, about this thing. Uh, because, and this is what they said, because we thought it would happen. If it's the will of God, we thought it would be quicker. So they said. If, if this is really God, we thought it would have moved by now. If this is really God, we thought that this process would have been quicker. We thought that this, we would have... You know, because obviously if God stamps on something, it just happens, doesn't it? Well, sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't, you know? But we take that step, we take that risk. And when they wrote me that letter, I wrote them back on and said, well, look, I'll, I'll share with you my view of the will of God a little bit here. And, and I just gave them some thoughts. You know, I've been involved in pioneering other things in, in my life in different places. And you know, this is exactly par for the course, to be honest with you. There's, 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 there's uh, resistance that comes against us whenever we start taking steps. Do you, you realise every time you take a step in life, there's resistance against you? Do you know that? Even when you walk, when you get up out of here and you walk out today, every time you lift your leg, did you know there's resistance against you lifting your leg? It's called gravity. Every time you lift your leg, there's something trying to pull you back down. But you've got to engage your muscles, you've got to do something to lift that leg. When you walk out to the car today, you're going to have wind blowing against you and so on. There's always resistance when we start to move. Most, we don't, if you don't want to feel resistance, don't move. Stand still. Don't do anything. You won't feel any resistance. But when we start moving, we feel resistance. So I emailed them back. But what really stood out to me was this the idea of, of the will of God, this concept of the will of God. There are so many misconceptions out there about the will of God. So we've been looking at last few weeks, uh, starting to look at last week, just a few of those little misconceptions about the will of God. Last week we looked at the first one, uh, which is that the will of God eliminates personal responsibility. Okay? We have someone else to blame. We, we sit and we wait for God to speak to us so that when we're 100% convinced as God, if things go pear-shaped, or that, we can just blame God. Or, or, there's a little story at the beginning of your Bible. Anyone remember the little story about a little man called Adam? This little dude called Adam that gets created by God. Now, Adam doesn't go, God, I think I need a helper suitable. Adam was probably living the dream out there, kicking his fishing, doing whatever you know. But God says, no, no, this ain't healthy, brother. You, you, I, I need another expression of who I am on planet Earth. And you're not carrying the whole load, so I'm going to create woman. And you two together will be a beautiful expression of the wholeness of, of who God is. And so he gives him, and, and then of course the snake comes along and says, you know, you're Eat this little apple, and uh, you'll be just like him. And so Eve plucks one for herself, one for her husband, says, here, take this, Adam. And Adam, being a good husband, did exactly what he was told by his wife, and eats the apple. Then God comes along. What's going on? And what does Adam do? The woman you gave me. In other words, not my responsibility, God. It's your fault. This was your will. This woman was your will. It was your idea. You took... put the responsibility back on you. And so many of us, we can, if, we, if we think that getting a word from the Lord means that we can then go and do anything we want, whenever we want, because we want, and we can just fall back. You ever get around those people? And, and, and they'll just, you know, they'll do the stupidest of things, but they feel like their justification for that is, well, the Lord said. Well, the Lord told me to marry that person. It only lasted three weeks, but the Lord told me to marry him. So I don't know what the plan of God was, but it was the Lord's will, you know? I married my second daughter. It was just the will of God. 
I shared last week, if you didn't hear, jump on iTunes about an ex-YWAM guy that came over to do a YWAM school, ended up in prison because he skipped visa, bail and everything, ended up on perfect match on TV. Eventually the authorities caught up with him. YWAM leader went down to speak to me in prison and he looked at the YWAM leader all excited and said, now I know why God's put me in prison here so I can reach these prisoners. It's like, no, you idiot. You're in prison because you skipped your visa. You're in prison because you dudded the, the immigration department. <laughs> you know, God didn't put you in here for any of that. You put yourself in here. Don't think that you can, you can throw everything on God and say, oh, it, because it's the will of God, all, it eliminates personal responsibility and so on. What I want to talk about this week, the second one, is that we believe that once we know it's the will of God, it will eliminate potential danger. We can live a risk-free life. If something's the will of God, if we can 100% be sure it's the will of God, then somewhere in our psyche we think that means it eliminates risk. Because it's God, right? God doesn't want us to risk, does he? God's not going to put us in potentially dangerous situations. I mean, if, if, if we're following God, doesn't it, it, it eliminate that? We live in a world that is risk alleviation focused. Anything that can cause any potential risk to you or to me, the world, we do everything we can to eliminate risk. Once upon a time, anyone remember growing up without seatbelts? I remember I didn't have to... I remember as a kid, my dad one day when we lived out near Coonabarabran, my old man put me in the back of his old Kingswood wagon. He used to go down the tip every week and, and we would drop off about, I don't know, five kilos of rubbish and we'd come home with about 20 kilos of other people's rubbish that my dad just found. No way, that's too good to be thrown out. I remember one day he got a rocking horse and I remember him getting the rocking horse, sitting in the back of the Kingswood wagon. I'm sitting on the rocking horse, rocking back. Well, we're going down the road, 100 kilometres an hour, and I'm in the back. Yeah, this is fantastic. Nothing happened to me. I made it. I survived, you know. But nowadays, you've got, everyone's got to wear seatbelts. You know? I'm not saying that there's not risk involved in not wearing a seatbelt. I'm not saying seatbelts haven't saved lives. What I'm saying is that society, in the world in which we live in, tries to alleviate any potential risk. When we were kids, we used to go down to Evans Head, down the road here, and you know the boat harbour where the, the, the trawlers would come on in, right? The trawlers would come on in, and they would get their catch and their fish. They'd be cunning and open blood and guts everywhere. They'd be hosing it down off into... We'd be jumping off the jetty smack bang into the middle of it, not even thinking about a shark or any potential danger. Not one adult would ever said to us, don't do that, guys, it's not safe. They'd just say, yeah, jump in there, yeah, you know? Nowadays, you, you go anywhere near a bridge, there's signs everywhere from the council going, you can't jump, kids can't jump off bridges, you know, you might get wet. All these things that you just can't do. And we live in a society that, is, that tries to alleviate risk. And I think some of us, we feel like, well, God's the same. Everything God's doing for us, every place God takes us to, it's all about risk alleviation. He wants to take risk out and remove potential danger. You know what? If risk and, and, and alleviation of potential danger was God's will, we wouldn't have the gospel here right now. What do you think it took for the original people to take this foolish message out into the world? What do you think it took to get the gospel to Africa? What do you think it took when God said to someone, sell all your possessions, pack up your family, get on a boat and head over to China because these guys don't know the good news? What do you think it took for these people to do that? I don't know where we get this idea that if we just can guarantee something's the will of God, it means there's no risk. Because the flip side is, if there's an element of risk involved in something, it mustn't be God. I just can't find that in the Bible. 
I can't find that anywhere, no matter where I look. You know, when we lived in India, there was this guy, when I first went over to India as a single man, there was this African pastor that we worked with that was over in India. His name was Zebulon. And he would come and get us and our small crew, and we would go into slums, real poor slum areas. And we would do dramas, and we would share testimonies, and we would preach and so on. You know, at the end of every message, this guy would stand up, and here's what he would say. And he was quite a charismatic dude, you know. He would get up and go, oh, this is to poor villagers. Come to Jesus. I'm telling you, my friends. He would do this with his hands all the time. Like, like the, you know, big African guy, tall, skinny, big hands. Oh, my friends. Oh, my brothers, my sisters. You want money? Come to Jesus. He will give you money. And I'd be like, what? You're sick. You want healing? Come to Jesus. He will make all of your healings happen. And I was like, well, my experience, some people do, some don't. I don't work it all out, but that's a big call. You haven't got a job. You want a job? Come to Jesus, my brothers. Come to Jesus, my sister. You will have a job. He will give you a job. And one by one, all the potential risks, risk factors of life, all the things that are potential dangers that can cause... He just rattled them off one at a time and made a 100% ironclad guarantee, come to Christ. It'll take away all those things out of your life. Wow. I still haven't met that Jesus myself. I still pray. I'm still looking for him. You know? And apparently he's out there somewhere. Well, what do you think all these Indian people do? What do you think they do if you walk into a, a beggar's village where they've got no money and you say, come to Jesus, he'll give you money? Well, of course you do. You know, of course you're going to put your hand up and you're going to come running up the front. Because it alleviates pain. It alleviates this suffering in your world. It alleviates risk. It alleviates danger. Any of that stuff that we can take out of our world. And you know what? I think we're just as bad in the West in certain areas. There's this radical extreme teaching about faith that, you know, come to Jesus and he will give you everything you want. Anything that, 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 that's potentially dangerous or risky or adverse to you, Jesus will alleviate all of it. I can't find that Jesus either. I've looked for him because, you know, it's an attractive offer. I'd love that life. I would love it. But you know what? I can't find it. And I can't see it at work. And I can't even find it in the Bible when I go to the Word of God. If you've got a Bible there, go with me real quick to 2 Corinthians 11. I want to read you something. This is written by a fellow by the name of Paul. Now, he was pretty clued up. He did a few wonderful things for Jesus. We've got two-thirds of our New Testament is written by this man. He had a lot of encounters. He came from a, a background where he's very anti-God, running around killing Christians. God gets a hold of him, transformed him, saved him. It's interesting in Acts chapter 9 where we have the story of this guy called Ananias and God comes to this lovely believer, Ananias. We don't know a lot about him, but God comes and says, Ananias, I've just saved Paul, Saul of Tarsus. I've just, I'm going to save him. I want you to go and pray for him. He's blind, you know? And Ananias, of course, goes, you must be kidding. This dude's here with letters. He's going to kill us all. God, are you sure? You know? And God goes, nah, look, I'm sure. And God says this to Ananias. He says, you know what? I've saved him, and I'm going to show him how much he's going to have to suffer to be my person. I'm going to show him what he's got to go through to carry the cross of Jesus through this life. It's interesting, because I flick through the Bible thinking, oh, wouldn't it be fantastic if God, if you said that directly to Paul? Paul must have heard about it. But um, he comes to Ananias and says, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to take this guy, and, and he's going to be an example of people throughout the generations that will come to faith. Number one, he's a guy that was so anti-God, but God can get a hold of anybody. God can break through anybody's world. And so Paul writes this, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, 
The Corinthian church have had a few people come into the church and they're basically preaching a gospel that's a little bit different to the one that Paul preaches. That people were coming in saying, look, it's, it's grace plus all these other things. Paul was very big on, no, 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 we are saved by grace through faith. Look at me, I'm the, I'm the, the, the filthiest of sinners. I crucified, oh, I killed people, I fed kids, women and that to lions, I locked them up, I did all this kind of stuff and God got a hold of me. I can tell you right now, I'm a living testimony of the fact that you cannot earn this grace of God. And he makes this statement talking about his life. In 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28, he says this, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. He goes, are they Hebrews? As in all these people that are coming in saying they're better teachers and, and they're, all, they're better than me and that I'm, I'm a second-class sort of uh, Christian. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I've served him far more. I have worked harder been put in prison more often. How's this for a resume? Come to Jesus. <laughs> Here's one, you know. I've been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes, one short of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he's not talking modern teenage. He's talking actual stones thrown at him. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. He says, I've travelled many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers, danger from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Who'd like to come to Jesus right now? Let's have an altar call. I guarantee I can promise you a lot of this stuff. We don't want that Jesus. We don't want that Jesus. Hey, Was Paul out of the will of God? Was Paul in the will of God? I think he was. I think he was. Look what the will of God looked like for him. Shipwrecks, concerns, all kinds of things going on. There's nowhere in the Bible where the will of God is a promise of a risk-free and a carefree life. How many of us, when we're going through stuff in our life, how many have ever done, don't put hands up, how many of you have done this or you've heard other people say this? Because something's not perfect, because there might be a risk factor, because there might not be going exactly how you think it is, how many people have gone, I must be out of the will of God? Who's ever said that or heard other people say that? We look at what's happening, the fruit. What we're subconsciously saying is the will of God has certain fruit and that's not one of it. So beatings... Is not one of it. Shipwrecks are not one. Paul says, I've gone hungry. Well, hang on a second. Find out where you're out of the will of God. Get back in the will of God and you'll have all this food will come. You'll alleviate your hunger. This is the fruit of being in God's will. If all this is happening, you must be out of the will of God. Well, I don't know about that. From a biblical perspective, I don't know that that's right. If you go through the Bible, and we'll, we'll look at this in coming weeks, but I'll just give you a short throw a berry at you. To, you know, most of what the Bible talks about the will of God is not about what you do. It's about who you are. 
You won't find many references in here where, where, where the, the, the phrase, the terminology, the concept of the will of God is attached to what you do. Why? Because there's a lot of things you can do. But you will find pointed references to the will of God in relation to who you are. Because you can't be a liar, a thief, and integrous. There's not a lot of scope for that. No, no, we need to be integrous and honest. We can't be holy and dirty and sinful and disgusting at the same time. That's not the freedom. That's not the scope. No, no, but we are called the will of God that we be holy. But the will of God in terms of what you do and where you go and what car you drive and what house you own and so on, I'm not saying don't seek God. Ask God. But again, just because God told you to buy a house in Ballina doesn't mean that in five years' time the market won't crash and that house won't be worth the money you paid for it. You know? Unless you missed it and God tried to say no, don't, in the process, in which case that's a different story. The will of God is not about alleviating risk. We think the will of God is about alleviating risk. I just can't get away from the, the image of a little guy called David picking up a stone out of the water and walking up to Goliath based on what he knew of who he was. I'm, 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 I'm a child of the one true God. I'm, an, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. And, and God is our God. And this dude over here has nothing to do with us. So his protection, I don't know where that comes from, but I know our protection comes from God. And all you guys might be freaking out and scared, but I'm going to pick up some stones, put it in my little sling, and I'm going to have a crack at Goliath. No guarantees he was going to hit him in the right spot. What if it just shaved his brow? You know? <laughs> what if Goliath ducked? Any number of potential things could have happened. There was a risk involved in him stepping up to the plate and saying, I'll do this. It's like Esther. There was a risk involved with Esther going, you know what, I'm going to go and stand before the king. I know that anyone who does that without being invited by the king, the penalty is death. I know that. That's a fact. But I also know that who God is. I also know what's going on in the world around me. I see an opportunity here to save God's people. What do I do about that? Well, I take a risk and I step into it with no guarantee of what the outcome is going to be, but I'm going to step into it anyway. Was there risk involved? You bet there was risk involved. She could have died. But she stepped into it and history was changed. And, and, and God's people were not wiped out, which was the plan before she decided to step in and to do something based on what she knew of God, what she knew of herself, the opportunity, and how could she bring God into that. I love the story of Gideon, you know. I mean, Gideon's got it all worked out, you know. Gideon's got it all worked out. You know, go to Judge, uh, Judges chapter 6, 7, around there. Yeah, God comes to Gideon. He's in a wine press, threshing floor in a wine press. You don't do that. It's, there's a whole story there, but... Cut a long story short, he finds himself with a massive army about to go on and take on, I think, the Amalekites. And, you know, according to all the warfare manuals, this is exactly how it should be. You have more people than them, you've got a good chance of winning. It's a fantastic idea. Ratio's in your favour. And God comes along and says to him, you need to strip it down, there's too many. And Gideon's like, tilt, tilt, what? But I can win this war, you know? I can do this. There's no risk of failure. And so God comes along. And God says this to him. He says, you're going to go out there and you can succeed, but guess what? Israel will claim glory for itself. You'll think that you did this. You'll think that you were great. You'll think that your fighting skills, your prowess, everything, you'll think it was all about you. And at the end of the day, he says, guess what? God, I won't get the glory for this. God won't get the glory. No one's faith in God will be built up. Their faith in the army will be. Their faith in the guys like, yeah, we were great. Look what we did. We won. But he says it's about bringing glory to God. You see, risk will never be alleviated from your life for the simple fact that risk is simply another word for faith. It's another word for faith. 
And Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God. So when we sit back and we don't do anything until all the risks are alleviated and we think that the will of, when it's the will of God, there'll be no risk involved, we're limiting ourselves. It's no wonder the church in the West sits on its hands and does nothing in most places because we don't want to step out in faith. We want to know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt. Go with me actually real quick. We'll finish up here. Go to, uh, to Hebrews real quick. Uh, where are we? Watch this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And it's impossible to please God without faith. Who wants to please God? Who wants to please God? I want to please God. Okay. You're never going to do it if you wait for risk-free opportunity. Till all your ducks are lined up. Till the, you know, the heavens and earth are aligned. It's not going to happen. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists, that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. What's the very next verse? I found this really interesting. I was reading it the other day. And it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. Hang on a second. There's whole chapters in the Old Testament of God coming down, telling him exactly what type of wood to use, what the dimensions are to be, what aisle in Bunnings he'd find the nails. I mean, God is so detailed about how he's going to build this ship. And then he has the audacity, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, to say that even with all this information, even with all the strategy and all the plans, guess what? Noah still had to build the boat by what? Faith. In Noah's heart, there was still a risk involved in this whole process. We think sometimes that these guys we read about in the Old Testament, we think Abraham, we think all these guys just, it was just, there was no risk involved whatsoever. They were so convinced it was God that risk was alleviated. Yet I don't find that anywhere in Hebrews where it talks about all these heroes of the faith. Read it, Hebrews chapter 11. This person, by faith, this person did this by faith. Every time it says by faith, what it's saying is these people faced a potential risk and had to take a step. No guarantees. There's nothing guaranteed about anything they did, but they took a step into something and God opened up space and they kept on walking and they achieved great and wonderful and mighty things for God. We don't want to take the step. We almost want so many confirmations, we want to get to a place where we don't need faith. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. God is going to stop short of you being 100% convinced that everything you're doing is right. When Moses led the children of Israel out and God came to me in a burning bush and said, here's what you're going to do. It's a pretty big call. You're going to go back to the place where you killed someone and you're going to lead a couple of million people, whatever it was, out of this, this, this nation that is dominating the world that is powerful and you're going to grab all their slaves and you guys are just going to walk out of town with all the gold and that's like, really? Seriously? Really? How's this going to happen, God? And God gives him a plan says this, this, this. But what's interesting, God says to him, when you get through it all and you get across and you get up on top of this mountain and you've gone out of Egypt, he says, you're going to be worshipping me and that'll be the sign that you heard from me. Wasn't the burning bush enough of a sign? Obviously not. Because God himself saying, you know what? There's a bush here. It's on fire and it's talking to you. It's talking to you. If I had a bush talking to me, I reckon I'd probably feel like, no, man. But you know what? I've never had a bush talk to me. So I actually don't know. You know? Maybe in a day or two I'd go, oh, it just must have been the hot desert sun or something. Maybe I didn't really see that. Maybe it didn't really happen. I don't know how I would go. 
Maybe I'll justify myself out of that being God. But God actually says to him, I'm, gonna, I'm even going to make rivers turn to blood. I'm going to put boils on these kids. I'm going to take the firstborn of all of it. I'm going to do all these things. You're going to see all this stuff. And guess what? In your heart of hearts, you're still walking by faith because you're still not convinced. It's not going to be till you get through all this, you're standing on a mountain worshipping me and pennies going to drop inside of you. You're going to go, yes, that was God. <laughs> this just seems bizarre, doesn't it? That's what the Bible says. Noah's building this thing by faith. That's bizarre. That's a big boat. Michael, is it a big boat, the ark? It's a big boat. I've never seen you build a boat that big in your slip, eh? Huh? That's a big boat. And imagine him picking up a nail going, gee, I hope this is God. Jeez, I hope I'm hearing from God. Oh, this better be God. Building this whole big boat. You know? I wonder what it felt like when he started to see the rainfall. Yes! You know? There's no guarantee from God that he will eliminate risk for any of us. There's no guarantee for God that if you're walking in his will, it's going to look a certain packaged way. And and it's a misconception that a lot of us have about the will of God. I want to tell you, I want to tell you to, to, to throw off some of those limiting shackles about what God's will is for your life. Do something. You know, just do something. Find a passion. Find a a need. Find an opportunity to serve. Find something you want to do. Start walking into it. Start stepping into that space and trust that if it's wrong, your father, who loves you with a passion, will speak to you and go, hey, come back closer to the shore. That's a bit too far away. But within the scope of that space, there is so much opportunity. I want to recommend a book to you. I want you to write this book down. And if you get a chance, try to get a hold of it. It's by a guy called, I think it's, Paul D. Young, Paul D. E. Young, and the book's called Just Do Something. It's not a big book, those of you that are afraid of books. It's a smallish book. Okay, Ruth, it's not a big book. And it's called Just Do Something. I I, I read it years and years and years ago, and it was a fantastic book about the will of God finding the will of God. This guy works in university campus and he tells stories of kids at university trying to work out what, what, you know, what subjects should I do, what should I do after my school, where should I you know, live on campus, should I live off campus, should I get this part time, all these things. You know? And the book's called Just Do Something. And I think it's a fantastic piece of advice. And I guess that's my encouragement to us and my challenge to us right now. We're talking a lot about the will of God. You're never going to find the will of God by standing still. Okay? All you're going to do is your joints will seize up. Okay? Start moving, start doing something. We're going to move into this building and we are smack bang in this area for a reason. And there are lots of opportunities. Lots of opportunities of things that we can do. Maybe you've got a dream in your heart. Maybe there's a passion that you've had. Maybe a thought you've had for years, but you're sitting back waiting for God to give you lights in the sky or a golden fleece or whatever it is. You know what? Just why don't you take a step towards it and trust that if you're heading in the wrong direction, God is going to stop you. God is big enough and he loves you enough to put a halt to that and go, you know what? No, no, don't. That's wrong. Head back this way. God will direct your steps. He won't direct your standing stills. He'll direct your steps. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for today. God, thank you for, uh, Lord, the fact that we do not hold you in the palm of our hand. We never have and we never will. But the beautiful thing is, God, you hold us. Uh, Father, we, we don't always have our eyes on you. That's a fact. 
but you always have your eyes on us. And God, that's so much more important, Lord. And God, I pray for uh, each of us here, God, this whole idea, this concept of what is your will. Father, we all have a heart to please you. God, we want to do what's right. That's, that's, that's our, our bottom line. The cry of our heart, Father, is that we want to do what's pleasing to you, God. We want to know that what we're doing, yeah, that you're okay with it. And so, Father, I just pray for each of us, God, that we would, uh, Lord, more and more be open to the idea that, Father, the will of God, what you have for us, what you put us here for, is, is a highway with much opportunity and not just a, an eye of a needle, God. I pray that when we think about the will of God, that it would free us up, it would give us liberty and, and the freedom to choose some things and do things and to run in directions. It wouldn't be a paralyzing thing that makes us sit still, afraid to do anything, afraid to say anything, afraid to go anywhere, Father. But Lord, we would understand that, that God, the will of God is, is a vast highway of opportunity for us. Lord, I pray this week, God, as we walk out of this place, that there would be things that we would do this week uh, God, steps that we would take towards maybe dreams, towards visions, God. Steps we would take towards passions that are in our heart, Father. Things where we've sat back and waited because we're just not sure you're going to be happy with us or not. God, we've got your word, we've got your spirit. Father, we have enough inside of us to know that if we're heading in the right direction, uh, God, then fine. If we're heading in the wrong direction, you're big enough to stop us. You're our daddy and we trust you, Lord. And Father, I also pray this week, give each person here an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with somebody who does not yet know him. Father, we ask that in your name. Everyone said? Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll, uh, don't forget anyone that can help out on Saturday with this uh, Salvation Army guy, let me know. Uh, Kids Church up the back, just put your name and details down there and we can begin a bit of a conversation about that as well.